for June 3rd, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 257, Arrested Development, A New Start. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matthew Rather. We are here with the panel to overthink Arrested Development. This is the story of a podcast that lost everything, and the one host who had no choice but to keep them all together. It's the Overthinking It podcast. Panel, your question. What or whose development would you like to arrest? Uh, we are joined tonight by the world's foremost expert on Arrested <laughs> Development, uh, but we will get to him. We will introduce him in just a second. First, drink. And uh, by the way, tonight, folks, I, uh, I am not drinking a wine from Trader Joe's. I went all the way to Costco and uh, went to their <laughs> discount bin, and I have a, uh, a nice Chateau Neuf de Pop, or as my friend Magnitude from Community likes to say, a Chateau Neuf de Pop Pop. pop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so uh, I am drinking it because first in the alphabet is Peter Fenzel. Uh, I am a little bit hoarse today, and longtime fans of the podcast know what that means. Drink. That I <laughs> drink your uh, Yogi Honey Lemon Throat Comfort Tea, <laughs> the official tea of Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. <laughs> why, Pete? Why, why are you hoarse? Oh, I was at my 10-year reunion. Uh, for college, yeah, and it was means there was loud noises and people clustered together, networking rapidly and loudly, and I was talking loudly for a long time. Uh, yeah, it was a great time, but my vocal cords—they've uh, aged more than the rest of me. Apparently. No, you gotta—I mean, Pete, you gotta get in there at your reunion. You know, the past isn't going to live in itself. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> Amen to that. Uh, and so, as much as I would like to arrest my own development, such that I, the fifteenth-year reunion, where the respite I've I've found as on the sort of. Uh, younger-minded side of my contemporaries might never come, uh, that the sort of the, the end of that sort of refuge might never arrive. I will instead say the development of a certain group of people who at this very moment, as we record, uh, are, are and I, this I will not spoil at all. Uh, this I will do no spoilers for. Uh, but uh, there is an episode of Game of Thrones that is happening right now as we record this. Uh, and there are a bunch of people who have not yet become acquainted with the events of this episode of Game of Thrones. And perhaps just to spare them, uh, and perhaps to allow them to hang in that del- delightful, because it's really going to be a wonderful episode, and, and hang in that, that delightful moment of either not knowing or, or not knowing yet. Uh, perhaps I would arrest their development. And uh, I think there was an ancient Greek philosopher who said that the greatest, the, the, uh, you know what, I'm not even going to say that. I'm not even going to say that because it would be, t- the, the people who know ancient Greek philosophy would find it to be a spoiler if there's a Venn diagram where there's people who know that philosopher and don't know Game of Thrones, uh, I would be ruining it for them. For I'll just say that. I'll just say uh, the, the non-readers of Game of Thrones who are watching the show tonight uh, would that they might be watching uh, tonight's episode in a suspended moment in time rather than one that will eventually pass. <laughs> uh, excellent. I'm, go- I'm just going to move on rather than exchanging witty repartee with you, Pete, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that we just need to move on from that topic, and we'll discuss it at the spoiler-friendly recap that we report tomorrow. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> uh, Mark Lee, next in the alphabet. All right. So one of the great things about Arrested Development is its title, right? How to play on words where the development that has arrested is both a reference to the housing development, right? 
um, which we should talk about later. How it was amazing how that show presaged the uh, the housing crisis yeah. uh, to come a few years after its original cancellation, uh, and of course the arrested development of the characters themselves. Right, they all sort of uh, are, are stuck in this sort of uh, childlike, selfish state. Um, but what they, I don't think, believe that they have touched upon is the other meaning of development, which is software development. Right, that isn't to say like you know the building upon building of new software and the, and the improvement of existing software. Right, so one piece of software that whose development should be arrested, should be stopped, is Microsoft freaking Office. All right, is anybody else with me on this? Okay, like they haven't added a new critical feature since I don't know pivot tables in Excel, and that was what two thousand and three, nineteen ninety seven, perhaps. You don't like the like, ribbon. You don't like the ribbon interface. Mark? Okay, you don't okay, think that was a revolution. Not in critical. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, the new XML file format sure saves a lot of space. There's a lot of advantages going into that. Fine. Okay, but after that, just pure bloat, pure corrupt, pure wow, just I, like you know incentive to to get uh, poor consumers and. and corporations to yeah, show out like $100, sure. 200 a copy that is not to get the an latest open version. format that is not that xml <laughs> format is not an open format you know also that yes <laughs> indignance. Mark, i feel like right, if, just raged indignance i feel like if you keep raging like this about on the internet about this they're just eventually going to put jj abrams in charge of it it's like the only <laughs> it's the only response to a pup to a to a, a franchise of such uh commercial magnitude being yelled at so angrily magnitude pop pop <laughs> I would like I would like JJ Abrams to be in charge of Microsoft Word because when the little paperclip icon uh, pops up, there would be a giant lens flare across the screen behind well, the paper. Can we can we continue this um, this analogy? Right, so people complain that JJ Abrams taking over Star Trek is sort of he's sort of taking out what Star Trek quote unquote is about. Right, the morality tales, uh, you know, the, uh, the the exploration, the diplomacy. Right, so if JJ Abrams takes if JJ Abrams takes over. Uh, Microsoft Office and like you know Microsoft Office used to be about oh I don't know what satisfying a corporate agenda and now he uses it to I don't know satisfy another corporate agenda and it's just not the same I feel like it's going to be great if J.J. Abrams takes over Microsoft Office because that way all the papers you write don't have to have endings (laughs) (laughs) zing um all right. Uh, I was going to do a software joke as well because uh, I was going to, to do a joke about Adobe going to a subscription model for Creative Suite, um, a, a thing on which Mark and I, I guess, differ or, or I don't know. We had a long email thread this week about how he thinks it's the worst thing in the world, and I, I don't necessarily do. But I would like to arrest the development, um, and, and not the psychological development, uh, because I think their psychological development is already arrested. Um, but I would like to arrest the development of anyone who thinks it's a good idea to talk about politics on the internet. Re, re, you know, really commenters on any site except overthinking it, uh, where we have a notoriously civil, uh, you know, commenting culture. I, I would like to arrest their. De- I would like to arrest the development of their butt into the chair, the development of their hands onto the keyboard, right? The development of their, you know, browser onto Reddit. Uh, you know, I would like. So, to is or- this is this a bad moment for me to announce my new project over Benghaziing it? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> it's going to subject uh, the events of Benghazi to a level of scrutiny they probably don't deserve. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's the wrong time for me to say I read the uh, I read a very funny Onion article the headline of which well <laughs> I didn't read the article I read a very funny Onion headline. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> the headline of which was uh, Michelle B- Bachman uh, resigns, citing God's wish that she make millions of dollars at a lobbying firm. Or Fox News. Um, you becoming the thing you despise. <laughs> Show me the birth certificate. Is that, <laughs> is that old? That's probably an old. It's a, probably his an old father joke. is the district attorney. <laughs> oh wow, that's a deep cut. That is a deep uh, cut. Ron Silver, uh, peace be upon him. Um, <laughs> shouting, his father is the district attorney and the short-lived, the, the tragically short-lived um, Fox series Skin. Uh, I'll include... <laughs> I'll be... Um, uh, I'll be putting a link to that in the show notes. All right, it's time to get to our special guest, uh, the world's foremost expert on uh, Arrested Development. Uh, we are very proud. Um, I actually, I tried to get this guy for a comment or roundtable episode a while back, and I, I couldn't book him. I mean, his agent said, uh, you know, Snitkoff doesn't get out of bed. Snitty doesn't get out of bed for less than a guest spot. And uh, so we're glad we have him now for the, for the guest shot on the Overthinking Podcast. It's Benjamin Snickoff. Thank you for inviting me. Long time, first time. Very, uh, <laughs> very, glad, to, very glad to have you. You go by uh, Snitty in the comments section, right? Yes. And on Twitter. And on Twitter. Excellent. Well, uh, so um, you actually have not triggered the drinking game uh, of when the special guest talks before their introduction. So I'm going to drink anyway. I'm going to make that a new rule of the drinking game. You drink when the special guest stays quiet until uh, her or his introduction. Uh, So, uh, Ben, whose development do you want to arrest? I would like to arrest the development of certain neighborhoods uh, around where I currently live uh, to prevent their further gentrification until I have enough money to buy a house there. <laughs> and, then, and then they can do whatever they want. So, li- so literally real estate development. Yes. Mm. You uh, want that ground floor to stay a little bit more grounded. Yes. Yeah, okay, okay. Do you, I uh, want... I mean, do, you, do, do you mind saying where, what neighborhood you live in? Or, you know, uh, um, are you it's... kidding? If you mention it on a podcast, the property values are going to go through the roof. <laughs> There's going to uh, be an artisanal coffee shop. Like, with the, the bricks, <laughs> the mortar, the, and the bricks like about to hit the ground as soon as the world's coming around. I thought that, They're... yeah, I mean, I thought that like Clover has already opened an outpost on every corner of, uh, but anyway, yeah. Oh, I wasn't including Clover. I was about to say there are already four artisanal coffee shops within a mile of me. So uh, that boat <laughs> sailed. But uh, I'm in, uh, in Cambridge. Well, technically Somerville, Massachusetts. It's near Inman Square. Oh, there you go. Oh, Inman. Yeah. God, I think the ship may have sailed on that one, right? Uh, the, yeah, mostly. <laughs> there um, were certain events that happened in the area recently that might have suppressed property values just a tiny bit. Well, fair but. enough. <laughs> but uh, I would try the opening of the All Star Pizza Bar because everyone's at the pizza bar eating the All Star Pizza uh, and not buying houses. Um, never mind. Too many local color jokes. We got to move on. We have two. We have listeners in Belarus. We can't afford to make all our jokes within like a five mile radius of, of like uh, the Somerville Public Library. I think it's a. I think it's a law that that like all the overthinkers have to have lived. Oh no, Mark, you didn't live in Boston at any point in your life, right? No, not yet. Not to my knowledge. Oh, <laughs> that I know about. 
when we get to your second focus episode, we're going to find out like an elaborate Rashomon style the time that you actually did live in Boston without your knowledge. Yeah, with it. Right? But you only went to Boston because the flight to Pittsburgh was too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like I, it's a lot. Like I lived briefly in Boston. Schechner still lives there. McNeil lived with Schechner for a short amount of time. Belinky lived on the floor on the living room floor with McNeil and Schechner for uh, a, a little while. Parrish lives there. Uh, I guess Shana has never lived there, right? Like you could just go through. I think Boston is the Newport Beach, if the right of uh, of the overthinking it, um, of the overthinking it crew. And uh, I had a I had like a, a stress nightmare the other night about driving around places where I used to live, including Boston, and realized I I don't know the directions back to my old apartment anymore. Like I can't envision the streets, and it was like a, it was like a deeply troubling nightmare. And I woke up in a in a cold sweat. So Arrested Development. Yeah, they haven't re- built the roads to where you live yet. Uh, they're gonna they'll build them soon. <laughs> so. Uh, uh, Arrested Development, uh, right? Netflix, Netflix season. So we wanna we wanna hash uh, we wanna hash this out. I sort of don't know even really how to dive into it. There there are you know three seasons um, of Arrested Development that were broadcast on TV, and the recent one that was you know released in a binge watching friendly format uh, on Netflix. I binge watched it. My girlfriend and I you know are big fans of the series and and binge watched it. Um, Pete, have you have you seen the the Arrested Development series? I have watched the new fourth season of Arrested Development in binge fashion, but I've watched little to none of the preceding seasons of Arrested Development. Uh, I watched some episodes. I watched some episodes. I've watched more than I thought that I did. I think if you were to add it all up, I know about. Um, I think my what, my favorite Arrested Development reference that I make when I want to let people know that I've watched some of it is uh, is uh, um, the mock trial with Jay Reinhold. I think that's the re- the rest of development period I've watched the most of is uh yeah. was it William Hung in the uh, in the Hung juries is that yes. his uh yeah yeah his band <laughs> yeah that was so, late oh, third man. season I've watched the third I think I've watched the third season of rest development I haven't watched the first and second seasons okay. and I've watched the fourth season so the yeah. baroque I mean the baroque period really of Arrested <laughs> development so you saw the I mean, yeah. you saw the We Britain arc and uh MRF yeah. And yeah. uh, so, I, I've, watched Arre- I've watched Arrested Development Z and Arrested Development GT, but not the original Arrested <laughs> Development. <laughs> so, by, so by the way, blanket spoiler alert for all of Arrested yeah. Development, every plot development, and every running joke mm-hmm. uh, in, in the thing. Because uh, you need to have that down to talk about any of it, right? Because yeah. it's so densely intertwined, like exactly. Grandma's Afghan or something. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I mean, there is, like, to the point where, like, NPR has done this public service where they... Uh, where they cataloged every instance of of every running joke, and we, I mean, I think we should talk about this. I want to stick a pin in this topic, but like, let's just circle back to the idea of sort of this obsession, like obsessional fandom friendly television that it, you know being being a genre, because I think that that's not something that. Um, that's not something that people used to do with my beloved Night Court, right? Is like make uh, make elaborate catalogs of of every running joke. Like every time Harry Anderson mentions Mel Torme in it, it's not like there's a. Uh um, There's no Tumblr with completely uh, devoted animated gifs of that. What about what right. about you? Uh, hey, Mark, have you been following anything on the internet this week? I mean, we know it's pronounced like the peanut butter now. God, 
Don't. Uh, nerd rage. Okay. Not, really, don't get me started on this. All right. So, okay, let's talk about binge watching. Hey, Mark, what do you right? think about Adobe uh, going to a subscription model for Creative Suite? Uh, ownership of software. <laughs> How much okay. have you seen? I've seen uh, less than half of it, but not, I wouldn't call it in binge fashion, right? I think I've seen two episodes in a sitting, maybe three in a sitting. What do you guys call binge watching? I think binge watching is when you watch a show uh, with the intention of watching it all at once. Define right? all at once, like all like in one day, in one sitting? Uh, like two sittings? Uh, oh, not in one sitting. You can't like like if I were binge watching The Wire and I tried to do it all in one sitting, that would be kind of insane, right? Like that's yeah. uh, that's like five seasons. I mean, I there's mean, a, there's an episode of Portlandia that or Portlandia that describes what happens when you binge watch uh, what Battlestar Galactica, right? It would just say you lose your job. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you eventually what you have Ronald Moore over here at somebody's <laughs> house at Ron Moore's house. Yes, yeah, Ron, Ron, Ron Moore, Ron Moore's house. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I would have to put a restriction on it that you have to be willing binge watching has to include watching more than one episode in a row. Like, uh, like fairly regularly, right? But other than that, is there like a time horizon for it? Or is it more just the idea that you're treating the serialized piece of entertainment as a, a, as a single composition that should be kind of enjoyed contiguously to the most practical degree well, possible? I, I think it's that. And the other thing is like, you know, when you're binge drinking, right, you're sort of doing it in like quantities that are considered what uh, they're detrimental to your health and sort of lead to impairment in a variety of other uh, functions, right? Yeah, Whether I like that. that. Evening I like or the, that. the day after, right? So that if you're watching so much of it that you're, um, you know, like not leaving the house for, you know, a good portion of a weekend daytime hours, or you're like you're staying in during a, a weekend night instead of going out. Yeah. Or you're like seriously contemplating making meth, <laughs> like because you've been binge watching, uh, you've been binge watching uh, Fringe. I'd like, yeah, I like that. I think that's a really astute observation that there's a kind of like background normative claim about just, just encoded in the term binge watching that has to do with like, it's too much, right? You're doing it. You're doing it too, too much. So Ben, did you uh, binge watch season four? Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit shamed to admit that I did after uh, Mitch Hurwitz, uh, advised against it i watched it all in about three sittings um sunday morning when i woke up sunday afternoon and then on monday because it was um memorial day i've got to space it out over like three sittings well so, so you so three sittings but two are in the same day yes so you oh, rolled man. out of bed right like probably didn't even pull a shirt on right like and and hit click on the netflix on the netflix set top box or something yeah pretty much that's that's excellent. I define binge watching as when you hide the remote so that the auto continue from episode to episode <laughs> on Netflix just rolls over without you having any power to uh, any power to stop it. Um, well, so I I guess the person I'm most interested in just off the off the bat is pete you know with relatively limited experience of the series right like, we have the world's greatest authority of arrested development on the podcast <laughs> well no yeah you're 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 right but i you know i don't know his well, you, so you want like, you want to hear my, my take as somebody who, who saw this as sort of like almost kind of like the first time that i really watched arrested development yeah was this. this was these you know 15 episodes like what did you think of that uh, I mean, I, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was good, um, but as of, of course, that's always the the most boring part of any sort of evaluation of this sort. Um, I mean, I I've watched enough of the previous show to know that it's not all as Rashomon-y. 
Right, like it's not about describing the same events from a variety of different perspectives. Right. Uh, right, like this sort of intertwining of things does happen through a sort of chronological longitudinal progression where like event B follows event A, event C follows event B, and there are references and callbacks, but there's generally an arrow of time uh, that, that progresses. Um, and in that sense, I think it seems fundamentally different. Obviously, um, it's 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 an ensemble. It was an ensemble show uh, that had to be structured for practical reasons in a way that uh, really detracted from the ability of the ensemble to take advantage of its strengths as an ensemble. Right, right. Like uh, again, in in improv in particular, we talk about like the group mind and the ability of people to be greater uh, artistically, expressively when they're in one another's company and responding to each other than when they're alone. Um, it's it's also it's a family show. So like. The other, the other thing, take I had on it was that uh, uh, these kinds of shows where there are failed families are often about like either feeling better about your own family or about like the family still manages to do family-like things that you identify with and like and connect with uh, despite all of the problems that it has. So there's kind of like a tragedy and also a comedy of it. Right, where you see the family kind of spiral out of control, but you also love the the moments of tenderness and, and identification and and mutual knowledge and familiarity and intimacy that these people share with each other. And in that sense, uh, it was interesting to have a show that, to me, upon my relatively limited experience, relied on an intimacy to keep it human. Uh, really destroy that intimacy with very strong Verfremdungs effects, right? Like very strong alienation effects, where you you know you literally did not know what was happening in most of the scenes until you watched the entire show. Then you would have to go back and watch it again to really kind of appreciate it. Um, that's kind of an interesting way to approach a family sitcom, uh, <laughs> which is supposed to be about familiarity. Uh, at least, at least a little bit. Um, so yeah, so I thought it was, I thought it was challenging and interesting. I, I, as it rolled out, it certainly caught my interest and it it felt beautiful. And, and, um, you know, there were definitely a lot of patterns in it. I think the pattern of like twinship, uh, it was a really interesting one. The sort of theme of, of self of reflecting yourself in somebody else, uh, of either finding your double in somebody that you love and care about, or, or like opposed to diametrically, or both, was kind of an interesting one to do uh, in in this sort of perspective. Sure, and that's I mean that's yeah. right. Like that was a big thing in season three with like Nellie Bluth and uh, you know I don't know the the you know just the idea of siblings as kind of a as kind of a mirror of each other as sort of competitors for the the parents the parents yeah, affection pete, i mean like yeah uh, pete brought up something interesting about how i mean the previous seasons revolved around the family and you know structurally this one couldn't but uh, a side effect of that and i think the the producers wanted to make it clear that this was happening in the introduction to each episode they changed the opening narration so that it's no longer you know a story about a family who lost everything and the one son who had to keep them all together you know it's very clear that each of these episodes is about one person and not one person keeping the family together but that one person keeping themselves together in the wake of what happened yeah do you think that they that it does that do you think that it's it the sort of um because it certainly uses that sentence to mm-hmm. connect the episodes, but do you think that the episodes are by and large about a person keeping themselves together or him or herself together? I think by and large the whole series was about each and every person fending for themselves. You know, despite what you know, despite the the pretense that it was Michael trying to keep the family together, pretty much everyone throughout the entire series was acting largely out of self interest. Well, right, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, but I, I would even I would even push on that and re- and sort of push on it a little bit and say like, are they are they 
keeping themselves together? Are they keeping themselves from falling apart? Are they unifying either an identity or a life that matters to them? I don't know, Matt, Matt I, I interrupted. Yeah, no, I, I, but it's a good, it's good that you did because I think like that question speaks to what I want to talk about, which is like, yeah, we, yeah, they are. I mean, right. Like this, this is a, it's an interesting thing. It's an, it's a, uh, it's a little allegory for the American economy, right? Which is like, what happens when you turn off this, this, uh, you know, this incredible supply of, of credit, right? Like that, that has financed the largest economic expansion in the history of man, right? Like what, what happens when suddenly, suddenly all of this has to be paid back or suddenly that hose, right? That hose that has been spewing forth, uh, is suddenly turned, turned off. And like, this is like, this is a thing that happens all the time in, in the original three series, um, where no one has a source of income, right? Like no one has a job except Michael. And, and though there's a great deal of, of reference made to Michael, like going to work or being at work or people being president of the company or, you know, uh, running the company and clearly it's a company that has employees because they're there to be uh, sort of exploited and, and sort of, you know, used for comic effect, right? Like, it's it's unclear that this company is actually doing anything. Uh, you know, their one housing development that, that we know about, right, like, is... is Arrested? S- yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. And uh, <laughs> uh, you know, right? It's it's unclear what what they're talking about in all of these in all of these board meetings that are that are depicted. And so, like when when uh, w- you know when a little money a, a little money comes in, right? Like um, I don't know. You, you, Lindsay is off doing doing things, and Tobias is off doing things, and Job is off doing things, and. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, so everyone has been fending for themselves and it's, it's like, I don't know. One of the things that I've heard Mitch Hurwitz talk about is that it's, it's like, um, it's like everybody is 14, you know, it's like everybody is emotionally 14 in the first, uh, uh, in the first three seasons and is, you know, has that kind of, uh, center of the universe complex that, that adolescents can have, um, and and that uh it's sort of really about it's it's not about keeping themselves together as much as it's about being like completely sort of self-involved right i mean i defer to the world's greatest expert well yeah i actually wanted to i I wanted to ask to the world's greatest expert just what did you think of season four i i really enjoyed it uh overall i thought that they spent a lot of time in the first few episodes uh as they played on netflix um they they spent a little too much time going over what had happened before uh to to set up where they were going but uh it picked up a lot of steam as it got you know past those first few episodes and into the later two thirds of the series uh i thought they did a good job and uh for those of listeners who don't know i think the original intent of this series was that you could watch them in any order whatsoever and uh again Hurwitz went back later and said uh d- don't don't really do that um because there are certain things throughout the series that that do rely on a linear storytelling, but you can see how they were trying to weave it so that you could watch it in any order and you'd have different reveals happening throughout. So that was it was very interesting and something that I haven't seen done as far as storytelling goes. Um, uh, so on on that uh, that matter, I I really enjoyed it. Cool. Hey, can I ask about one reveal about this whole thing, just to, to, to get into the specifics a little bit? Um, so 
is and this is maybe this is maybe diving way down into specifics from a from a very high level view. Is Lucille too dead after the events of this season? Um, what like that? That was one part of the story that I just I just sort of didn't follow. Did she die? Was she murdered? I think she was injured when she fell down the stairs, but okay. whether or not she was dead, I think, is left up to. I mean, it seems like a standard kind of, you know, cliffhanger. You know, they can kill her off if they need to kill her off, but if they want to bring her back for you know season five or the movie, the they movie, can. Yeah, yeah. It depends oh, if it, it depends if they can book Liza Minnelli or not for the next, uh, you know, for the next chapter. Uh, okay, so 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 that so that didn't even strike you guys as like a particularly problematic, or like even like sort of a. a a part of the story that you really thought was important. Um, no, no. Okay. So, all right. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I mean, but it's, it's, it's a story about people who treat each other with such reckless disregard, you know, that like, it's, I, I don't know. It's hard to, I, I, you know what I mean? It's hard to have the kind of moral, the more, the kind of moral problem that you're gesturing to, right. With, oh, with, oh, okay. See, I see for me, my experience watching the season, the fourth season, I guess, without the previous, uh, familiarity or and such, I was really, I was really connecting with the characters on that level throughout. Like, like in particular, like maybe for example, right. Like to talk about maybe for a second, I feel like to say that the episode is about her holding herself together is a misnomer because she's just fallen apart so profoundly in the events between the end of the initial series and now, right? The thing that she's doing is just, you know, just Sisyphean and just, just totally self-destructive and so sad because she's such a likable character. Um, well, was she, I mean, was she, I thought that she was, I actually thought that they, I, I really admired what they did with maybe in this one, right? Because like she was the closest thing sort of to an ingenue and like they, but the, w- w- a status that they mocked with George Michael's obsession with her. But like, um, I thought that they just, she crossed the line into completely unlikable, right? Like in this, in season four where it, where something that she, something that, um, uh, some the seeds of which had been planted in seasons one through three, which is that like having been neglected by her parents, having having these parents who are you know clearly incapable of giving a child any sort of love or attention or affection or anything or fulfilling any of a child's like very serious developmental needs, right? Like she she grew up into a kind of sociopath where you know I don't know she's like working the system to get boys to do her homework for her, and she's working the system to do. You you know, like uh, to to uh, I don't know, take advantage of them and scam money out of them, and like that. But th- you always saw her through the lens of George Michael, uh, you know, who had a crush on her, and and with this, by kind of by kind of throwing that out very early in her in her episode with the tongue animation, right? Like the. Uh, I don't know. I I thought it was it was very courageous to like make the young woman on your show, uh, the young pretty girl, like that unlikable, right? I mean, she's been pretty unlikable, at least in in one way, from the very beginning, from the middle of the first season. She had her alter ego Shirley Funke, who was a, she played a fake disabled girl to raise money for her disease, BS. <laughs> it was extorting money from her from her fellow um, students and uh, the, the teachers at her school. So, see, I, mean, I think I, that's charming. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> no, I think that's charming. charming. No, 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 I thought it was charming. Way, I don't know. I think the way it was presented was was sort of charming, right? Like, I don't yeah, know. I, I think Matt, you have a good point that when you've got 
may be doing that and George Michael still doting on her, there is a sort of it, – it sort of lessens the blow of the, the terrible things that maybe does. But at the same time, you know, she's never been a, a well-anchored character. Sure. Well, she certainly doesn't come off well – or at least she, she certainly doesn't, like, have good things happen to her in the fourth season of Arrested Development. No. Uh, between, like, sort of uh, unknowingly statutorily raping someone and then, like, just trying to then building a business with fairly sincere vigor and earnestness only to be fired and have it all swept out from underneath her, right? And then so. telling everybody off at the Opies. Right, 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 right. Which I thought was actually pretty great. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, we talked about this on the podcast before, I think, this uh, idea of the sitcom with completely unlikable characters is a bit of a revolution recently right to say that like you know there's no one character who we really root for and identify for it's sort of like we just we're just here to watch the train wreck right and uh what another example of this has been always sunny in philadelphia i think another cast with completely unlikable characters well they're all jerks but i still like them like i like mac i think mac's hilarious i like dennis i identify with him personally Yeah, but what do you mean it all depends on what you mean by like (laughs) right like oh yeah 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 I just think of it as like this is a brand I want to consume. That's the Facebook definition, right? <laughs> no, like <this> <laughs> no, 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 like my page. God, like the page of my improv group, Pete. <laughs> it's been suggested that you go like yourself, um, but uh, yeah, I mean that is a good question though. To like, I mean, because I think there's there's definitely the question that is raised by most tv today which is should, can you like someone who does things that you don't think are good or right right like a lot of people have a, a kind of conversation about that that's that's fairly fairly surface level in the sense of like oh can you can you like walter white or not Walt, Walt, like walter white just based on whether he cooks meth right like can you like dennis or not like dennis Dennis just based on the fact that the Dennis system exists. And then the show sort of raises that question a variety of other ways, right? Like, um, you know, do you like, uh, is the fact that, that um, George Sr.'s sweat lodge thing a scam, does that make you like him or not like him based on it? Or is it how that he goes about doing it that causes you to like him or dislike him? Do you identify with him personally? I don't know. What does it mean to you guys? Well, I've got a question for you, Pete, yeah. which is, are you saying... Like, is this a desirable desirability thing? Like, uh, um, a crack addict can desire uh, crack cocaine, but it's not a desirable thing. Are you saying, like, categorically you cannot like somebody who is who is a bad person? Or are you saying just that people shouldn't like a, a bad character? Oh, I am, I, am, I am speaking on behalf of people I do not agree with who will say that a person who does unadmirable things just as a general matter, of course, is, is not likable. Okay. Um, not well, in the I, sense that it is not desirable. So to like that a- admirable is probably the better word that I was that I should have used earlier. When talking no, about I, I feel like, but I feel like you're shortchanging the conversation. I mean, I feel like it's important to use that word because that's the word that people use. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but, but yeah, but I mean, but it's also likable. We, I mean, there's a history of likable as a term of art in our discourse around television and our discourse around like television executives giving notes to, you know, the yes, beleaguered yes. creatives of of uh, you know behind the beleaguered creators of shows saying like oh so-and-so isn't likable enough or, or relatable is another right is another word and this has been you know um this is why like dan Harmon wasn't working for community for a while though i guess he is now or or uh why you know i don't know a bunch of shows that that seem to have been awesome right like got canceled because the characters weren't likable or weren't weren't relatable um by by which what we mean bland or you know 
charming. There's another, I, you know. Yeah, there's another interesting distinction here between a likable protagonist and a likable antagonist. So we would put up with a lot of things in an antagonist and still like that antagonist. That if a protagonist did, we we would not necessarily like that character. Yeah, like if uh, Benedict Cumberbatch was as, was played Khan in Arrested Development season four, and he just like ran into George Michael's dorm and just like let George Michael punch him in the face thirty times and then killed Peahound. Like we might still like him, but <laughs> but if Job did the same thing, it would be horrifying. <laughs> what is it about Benedict Cumberbatch? He's so charismatic, and he's not necessarily like classically good looking. I mean, he's not a George Clooney, but you know, I don't know. It's those cheekbones. I, that, I, mean, uh, actually, I, just, I just want to look into his eyes and say, same, same, same. And a lot of it's the name, honestly. Like, imagine him if his name were just, like, Joe Smith, right? So, wait. So, so actually, let's jump off on that moment for a second. The same stuff. I mean, first, because that was, that, that whole thing, that whole, the whole Ben Stiller, Job, I'm the same as you, and I'm going to have this, this mantra with you of emotional connection. Um, what did you guys think of that? Did you buy Ron Howard's explanation of it? Uh, that this was friendship I and mean, a feeling they'd never explored before or understood before? Or, or how did you guys see what was going on in those episodes? In that I, th- arc? I thought that was great. I mean, I thought that was a, a really interesting episode, the Tony, the Tony Wonder stuff, which apparently, I don't know, I heard in an interview was some of the last stuff shot. Like everything, everything was done, but they hadn't been able to get Ben Stiller in. So they just left holes for all the places where Ben Stiller was supposed to be and then, then uh, shot all those scenes with Ben Stiller in, in, uh, in one go. But like, I thought that this was like for... Uh, I thought that this was interesting, and I'm using as my operating theory that this show is about sort of teenagers, right? Like that it's it's about um, it's about people who are fundamentally not adults and who are not responsible and not uh, good citizens, and like really don't have a lot of the markers that we look for in uh, you know the sorts of adults that you would like to be friends with or have in your community or you know have in your workplace or have in your family right like so if if there are teenagers there are these sort of there are these sort of milestones and i i don't know maybe it was just me but like where you where you sort of discover as a teenager kind of more and more um Jesus, maybe maybe I shouldn't do this much autobiography, but you discover more and more your your capacity for intimacy, right? Your capacity for being close to people, and before you can kind of like before the the whole kind of social norms part of it can kick in, and you can like uh, rationalize it as oh we're bros, or you can rationalize it. There 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 is an experience, like a fundamental experience of intimacy, um, you know, between men that can happen, or between women. I, I'm told that can happen. You know, that's not strictly speaking, that's not strictly speaking sexual, but that that is like very, very uh, deep. And like, I, I don't know, I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I thought the show was saying something with it, like it took them both pretending to be gay, right, in order to be open to an experience of, of you know, connection with one another that was in any way authentic right that that was i don't know where that was beyond bs in in any way i don't know am i full of it pete uh if by full of it but by it you mean like homosexual intimacy 
then sure. (laughs) (laughs) Same. 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 Uh, Can I jump in? I actually want to go back uh, a bit absurdly to something Pete said where he brought uh, John Harrison, Benedict Cumberbatch's con into this. Uh, (laughs) Please, please do. And this is is my shot at like the absurd overthinking it premise um, that there are a lot of similarities in like a a thesis antithesis way between Star Trek Into Darkness and Arrested Development as a whole series, not just concentrating on season four, in that... One of the main themes of Star Trek Into Darkness was family. What would you do for family was the big question. And of the the three principal uh, heads of the families there, we had John Harrison, we had uh, Captain Kirk, and we had Admiral Marcus. We had two of them, um, Khan, uh, John Harrison, and Marcus, who were willing to kill for their family, and only one person who was willing to die for their family. And if you look at, you know, you then pan over to Arrested Development, what would you do for family? The answer is to a person, especially in the fourth season, very little, if not nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So wait, so what would, so, so, so you're saying that, you know, in wrath of Khan Spock goes into the radiation chamber and says, you know, like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of few, you know, I am and always will be your friend in Star Trek into darkness. You know, Kirk goes into the radiation chamber and says like, you know, Spock, I, you know, I, I am your friend, right? And then, like, in Arrested Development, like, Job goes into the ration chamber and says, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> I want to see that scene. Like, I want to see that scene happen. I want to see the, the characters in Arrested Development just reenact shot for shot the events of, of Star Trek Into Darkness and or The Wrath of Khan. You know, in a way, Job's boulder was the radiation chamber. <laughs> in a way, in a way, definitely. Uh, do you think Tony Wonder did sabotage the uh, the tomb? Or do you yeah, think it was somebody else? I mean, it else? was a cross, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a cross that was in there, so... Right. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I was wondering why they didn't resolve that. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was heavily implied that that was Egg. Egg? Okay. Her? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that, I'm assuming that's a running joke from the show that this character yes. was in the show before, and they don't just sort of assume that everyone thinks it's okay that he's marrying a 70 year old girl for some reason. Yeah, uh, uh, Anne was uh, Anne uh, showed up first at the end of the first season. She was played by a different character. She was played by the uh, Cylon from Caprica, uh, Alessandra Torsani, or something along those lines in the first oh. season, and then she was replaced by Mae Whitman for the second and third, and then four seasons. I gotcha. I gotcha. And uh, the running joke is she's incredibly plain and. Um, one episode in the ooh, second season, I want to say, George Michael says that Anne does this cute thing where she uh, takes a hard-boiled egg, she sticks it in her mouth, and then she squeezes out an entire mayonnaise pack and just kind of rolls it around. She calls it a mayon egg. And from that point on, everybody calls Anne egg. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah getting her name wrong is one of the jokes in NPR's running joke uh, catalog. And gotcha, gotcha, on, gotcha. On the internet. Uh, can what we, did you guys? Can uh, we talk about that? I mean, like that. That like, I don't know. Is that, speaking of eggs, right? Like, is the is the oh, the the what the willful and careful secretion of Easter eggs for fans? What we go to television for now, right? Like, is well, to d- define we. Well, right? uh, we the, you know, like we, the the, the forty five year old in the, in the suburb who's watching NCIS every night. No, uh, right. 
Wow. The that's des- a- denizens of the internet. Uh, that's an awfully know. young viewer for NCIS, I think, right? Like, Excuse me. Okay, 55. <laughs> yeah, don't oh, they have a lock on the 50 to <laughs> plus market? Right. It's like they have one of those parental controls, but it's for people who are not <laughs> septuagenarians. <laughs> <laughs> it's a uh, it's tv 49 <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so uh is, no i mean we the overthinking public right i i mean we the uh, you know right we the the right thinking you know dedicated intelligent audience for um uh you know i don't know for good good quality you know second golden age of television uh television and the second golden age is usually the silver age right or something like that well, i don't, even, I don't know for the, comics it the, is. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. um the, yeah i mean i'd say it's certainly part of the habit it's part of the habituation of television watching right because like with tv watching there's there's like at least two different uh, axes on which uh, the behavior is predicated, right? There's the the habituation axis where it's what can we do to get you to watch the show every week or every day or every time it comes out, right? And that's like where you get cliffhangers. That's like the same bad time, same bad channel. That's like where you, with Everybody Loves Raymond, where you make it terrible and everybody watches it. No, I don't know why everybody watches Everybody Loves Raymond. I hear it's really funny once you're married. Uh, I hear that actually Everybody Lives Raymond is actually really good once you're married <laughs> with kids. But if you're not, it's just the most – it just makes no sense. Um, but uh, but at any rate, um, but there are there are mechanisms that are, in, that are in television shows to convince you to watch them often. And then there are other mechanisms in television shows to, like, convince you to watch them once, right? Or, like, convince you to get pleasure out of each watching experience, like, as an independent entity. Uh, and I would say Easter eggs are, are increasingly becoming uh, a way of uh, – of strengthening the habituation of television watching, uh, rewarding it, right? It's like it's like a video game, basically. It's like yeah, a game design. I, I hear you on that, Pete, but this show doesn't quite operate in the same uh, incentive structure that t- television traditionally has, right? Because they're you know issuing all of these episodes at once. You just have to be a Netflix subscriber, and you can just watch it, right? Well, you know? yeah. Well, then th- that raises the question of whether whether binge arrested development. Uh, is it works right? Like, uh, not. I mean, certainly, binge arrested development is structured fundamentally differently from serialized arrest development. Assuming that you're, you know, the old arrest development was meant to be watched like once a week over the course of several years, um, the callbacks mean something different if you're if you're seeing it six months later than if you're seeing it two hours later. Right? They have a different effect yeah. on your behavior. They have a different like dopamine release factor. So you might even say like maybe. The callbacks in Arrested Development are worth less now. Now, if you're watching them all at once, than they were extended over a long period of time. Well, right, because I, you know, there's a great deal of like effort that you have to go to. Actually, Belinky wrote an article about this on Overthinking It about like what what you used to have to go to to go through to get rare TV shows. You know. Um, Oh, like the sort of bootleg VHS market and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Where he would get the stuff that he would give to us. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, on our on our like you know senior trip, right when we were supposed to be going to Myrtle Beach, like a Blinky uh, McNeil and I went to Disney World <laughs> instead, which is a very different place from Myrtle Beach, and um, we uh, brought along with us a bootleg uh, tape of all of season three of The Sopranos that we had bought on eBay, right? That was recorded at 
EP. You know, it was just this terrible thing. We put it in one day and watched 13 hours of The Sopranos. Uh, the, you know, and it was like punishing, you know, it was not enjoyable by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm so glad we did it. Uh, right. Because like, I, I can, I can tell the story now. I don't know. Like I can say that we, we really like sacrificed our bladders and our vacation and our, you know, what should have well, been a fun you, moment. Do, I mean, is this because the scope of what you tried to do was too much or is this because there's something about the Sopranos where it's not made for binge watching? Um, I mean, I, I thought House of Cards was really was made for binge watch. I mean, David Fincher talked about in public how House of Cards was made for binge watching, right? Like they like struck, they like dealt with it relationship with the audience differently. I think, right? Um, but, I mean, was Sopranos like that, or was it just it was just? I mean, because there were a lot of things that we did in that time of our lives that weren't good for our health. <laughs> yeah, but, but the uh, yeah, well, well, right. Like, I think it's not. I think actually, like, The Sopranos is a show that kind of actually rewards uh, deliberation and kind of meditation, and and rewards kind of a slow pace, and actually rewards that week um, spent between episodes where you can kind of you can kind of let it uh, enter your subconscious because it's a show about the subconscious a lot of the time. I mean, the first episode is called "Guy Walks Into a Psychiatrist's Office," isn't it? And the, the uh, um, you know, and so much dreams, like there's a whole episode of the Sopranos that's like this ex- extended dream sequence. Um, and, and Arrested Development is different, but for a show that like, uh, I don't know, I felt like you could have played House of Cards end to end as a 13 hour movie. Arrested Development preserved the kind of act structure of television, right? Like where, where there were these fades to black or to white, actually, in the case of Arrested Development, um, at these kind of important structural points in the episode. And like, you know, I, in Arrested Development, an act break goes out on an oh no moment, right? Like, <laughs> so there were these, you know, there were these uh, moments kind of structured throughout the... the um, yeah. That's a good point. So there was the fade to white, and then the narration would often come back and sort of explain what the predicament was, right? Yeah. I also thought, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I thought that, like, um, not that anyone has asked me, but, like, I, re- I really enjoyed the season, but I enjoyed it more uh, as it went on, right? Like, because I felt like, I felt like uh, as a rat, you know, pressing the, the lever to get my little cocaine pellet. I- <laughs> I thought that the cocaine pellets were dispensed with increasing frequency kind of at, uh, more uh, later in the season. And that, you know, there, there were longer periods between my cocaine pellets in the first maybe five uh, episodes of the, of the fourth season. And, and I thought about this a lot. And I thought that, like, um, I thought there were a couple of... Uh, I thought there were a couple of structural errors. One was doing uh, 15 instead of 13 or 12 or whatever the original plan was, right? Like, I I read something online about, like, how the original deal had been to do 12, and then there was just so much material that they increased it to 15, because I thought that, you know, a bunch of, you know, good trims could have been made to, uh, you know, I don't know, to kind of normalize the pacing a little bit. And then to, to, not, to break out of the 22-minute episode format, right? Like there were, I think, like uh, there are episodes in th- season four that are as long as 35 minutes. And yeah, to me, the most twi- of them are 
30 plus. Yeah, are, are, are a full half hour, are the solid half hour rather than the 22-minute episode with commercial breaks, right? Uh, but that, like, I don't know. I never saw Arrested Development with commercial breaks. I saw it on Netflix DVDs and then again on Netflix Instant scream- Streaming and then again again on Netflix Instant Streaming. And... Um, you know, I don't know. It's like a a haiku or a sonnet, right? Where like being forced, being constrained by that, uh, you know, by that extremely rigorous format, um, can unleash uh, a great deal of of creativity because it forces you to kill your darlings. It forces you to focus on what's most essential. And like, uh, you know, I don't know. I I feel like as much as I enjoyed the fourth season, especially the back half of it. Um, I felt like there, there wasn't there wasn't an episode that couldn't benefit from you know judicious use of the scalpel, right? Yeah, I don't think that's a controversial opinion. I think that's something that's broadly shared by by the consensus that like you could have made them shorter. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm I, I'm glad. I'm glad I match up with the average. <laughs> oh, Matt, you're not just average. To My us. opinion is extraordinary. <laughs> I apologize. I apologize. Um, so let's 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 take that from there, right? So uh, people talk about how Netflix is the future of television, right? You know, because of the <clears throat> the distribution method um, and uh, its break from you know ad, you know ad support and things like that, and now we have this uh, revolutionary and, and and shocking ability for a storyteller to, to present a comedy instead of in twenty two minutes thirty seven minutes right, and we're saying that might not that sort of freedom might not be a great thing. Um, so what happens here, right? You know, according to the free market, that um, you know a bunch of experimentation is about to happen, and eventually the market will decide what the best format is going to be. Uh, I mean, if you want to talk about the market, let me just interject briefly that Netflix lost six percent of its stock value of its market capitalization last week uh, uh, because of the negative critical reviews of Arrested. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, I I don't think that that's necessarily. I don't think that's necessarily the right construction to put on that. I mean, right, like in the in the uh, God, if you look at the the Netflix, it's still an upward trending thing, right? Like from the nadir when they made some real mistakes having to do with disaggregating their services and charging people twice as much for getting the same thing all of a sudden, right? Like it's still an Quickster was a huge mistake. Yeah, 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 right. Like (laughs) it's. the, the, that I, was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> reference. Thanks, Pete. Uh, right, like from from that, it's still you know I don't know. I feel like there's enough volatility. Like the, that stock goes up and down five oh, percent. Right, like that 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 may still be in the noise level, and I think that that Netflix isn't is an upward d- upward trending. I mean, don't take any investment recommendations on based on what we say on this podcast. Yeah, uh, right. Exactly. But- Overthinkers may hold positions in any of the, dis- the companies <laughs> discussed on this mm-hmm. podcast, or at least um, the the you know the ETF I'm invested in may hold. On the next overthinking podcast, <laughs> I, 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 well, Jim, Jim uh, what's the guy named Jim, Jim, Jim Kramer? Yeah. Jim Kramer joins and gives investment advice to the overthinkers. I will Jim- say this though: I was looking at looking at this report from the Sioux City Journal. Journal, which is where I just got what I just said. Um, uh, it, it says that 
of uh, Netflix subscribers monitored by this market research firm finished the entire season of Arrested Development on Sunday. Wow. Wow. What, 10% of subscribers or 10% of subscribers who are watching Arrested Development? Uh, it says, what, gosh. No, no, 10% of Netflix subscribers that were subscribers in the sample, in they were, yeah, that they were monitoring. Yeah, one third of Netflix subscribers watched some of it. And 10% of them finished it the first day. You know, it's That's funny because like, they, they yeah. don't release, you know, they have all these metrics. And I mean, this is the thing. And this was the thing that was in that wired, that wired issue that the, overthink, that the overthinking it crew contributed something to, um, you know, our one foray into traditional media, right? Like um, that the, the new television has big data, right? Has like extremely large amounts of information about our behavior and our preferences that was never available to television up to this point, because, you know, Nielsen's is a, uh, the Nielsen ratings, at least the journal based Nielsen ratings, which were the way for a long time was a crappy system, right? Cause everyone was saying they were watching masterpiece theater like, right? Like PBS got way over reported, uh, when you have to write down in a book what television you're watching, there are all kinds of biases that are introduced in that process. And, and, um, and that, like in Netflix, there's not, you know, right? Like Netflix knows that I add all these things to my queue that are uh, foreign movies that look like they feature a lot of attractive young people nude. They know that about, you know, my instant cue, right? Like, and uh, This is another consensus opinion that you have, Matt, you think is very exotic. <laughs> no, I, I, no don't think anyway. it's, I don't think it's exotic. I, th- I no, think no. that this is why they, right, like, display these things prominently in, in their interfaces, right? Like, because apparently in, in Spain or in, uh, you know, wherever, you can make a lot of these movies that don't get released in, in Los Angeles. And, like, right, so they know us, you know, they know us better than we know ourselves, right? Right? Like their their big data model, their big data model of us is better, and like so, but they don't release those those internal metrics, um, you know. And this is you know th- something that enrages television networks who have had to live or die by this third party, uh, you know, rating system, Nielsen ratings that like uh, you know I don't know can make her that can sort of make or break you. Um, but I, you know, I don't know. I sort of worry. I, I worry about this. I worry about the kind of like Huxley's Brave New World ification of television, right? Like that, that, that it'll get to a point like it's gotten with, with food where the, the, you know, proportions of salt, sugar, and fat in food, the snackability and the kind of like snackability factor, yeah. the ability of like, like your hand to go back and forth, you know, between the bag of popcorn, you know, the bag of pirate booty or the bag of Cheetos or whatever, and your mouth, like that, that they'll find this, this formula in television and start, you know, feeding it to us. Sure. And, and- so this is a good opportunity to bring up a, a, an article recently about uh, this sort of phenomenon with movie scripts, right? Has anybody, uh, has anybody seen this? Uh, basically, a firm out there is, is pitching themselves as Moneyball for movies, right? They have built a data model. They have, they, uh, have all these variables for different script elements, and uh, they will take people's scripts, and they will feed it into this algorithm. They, I mean, they'll do a lot of sort of manual sorting and uh, coding of, this, of the script elements, and they'll feed it into the algorithm, and they'll give notes to the scripter based – on the algorithm and to try to improve its uh, chances for financial success. Yeah, it's the kind of thing which is like that. you know, like movies with bowling scenes don't do well. <laughs> so don't put a bowling scene in your movie. 
I mean, okay, so this this oh sorry, can I can I jump in or okay, because this takes me back to the subject of last week's podcast, The Fast and the Furious. <laughs> Cause I wrote an article about this uh a couple a bunch of years ago about Fast and Furious, Fast and the Furious four, which of course uh outperformed market expectations by a factor of more than a hundred percent. Yeah, that was just fast and furious. Fast and furious, the that article wasn't list. Fast of- four? Uh, no, no, it, wasn't no called it, was, fast it was called Fast and Furious, right? They went okay. the Fast and the Furry, Furious, Too Fast, Too Furious, uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious. Yeah, Fast oh, and fast Furious 5 is what I was thinking of. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. And, and I think that weekend, um, the, you know, Vin, Diesel's, uh, Vin Diesel hadn't really been considered a bankable star. His previous movies hadn't done well. Uh, there wasn't an expectation that this movie was going to make all that much money, and it turned out into, into a huge hit. And if you looked at the sort of relative performance against expectations of the various movies, um, the spread was huge. Like, it would be easy to dismiss to someone who doesn't look at numbers, but they were so wrong, right, the, the market forecasters. And then if you go through, like, any given week, uh, the likelihood that these forecasters are going to be right is so small. I mean, like, I, I, I don't, I, again, I don't like to talk about my own work that much, but if you look at economic forecasting that comes out of all of the different firms that are involved in investment you know does anyone ever go back to what you were doing in january and look at what people said was going to happen you know like i I, you can read read bill gross's twitter feed and then look at what's been happening in the bond market for the last couple weeks am i right people am i right uh i mean yeah we made a joke at jim cramer's expense earlier we know yeah yeah yeah. well i mean you know it's just like people who try to predict what's going to happen in the future are so wrong um, and you know you I've might made a be... huge mistake. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the more you think you know about what's going to happen in the future, uh, the the more vulnerable you are to being wrong about the few unpredictable things that come along. And that's the whole black swan thing, right? Is that like yeah. all of a sudden Vin Diesel comes over and eats your lunch for three weeks, and all of a sudden you know you've overinvested by ten thousand people on three continents. Well, right. right. It's and like, this oh. is, I mean, this is something that happened actually as recently as this past weekend, where. Um, what After Earth was was tracking very well, at least as far as people people knew, and like like all the metrics, like kind of intent to purchase and stuff like this, were you know were on track, and then presence, suddenly presence or absence of Will Smith that was an important variable <laughs> model. It was nothing next to American Muscle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Fast and the Furious jokes continue. I really expose myself to too much of that stuff. I think I've suffered some sort of horrible radiation poisoning from my. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, but it fell. Fast and the Furious destroyed it, right, in the box office. Yeah, well, uh, Fast and uh, I wouldn't say destroyed right, it. I mean, like it had outraced. this. You oh, know, man, what <laughs> win by an inch or a mile, winning is winning. It's uh, another Fast and the Furious reference. <laughs> um, yeah, it no, I, I, Fast, uh, uh, Fast and Furious Six beat it, but also yeah, like now you see me, right? Like, like this. Um, you know Jesse Eisenberg movie that had like Woody Harrelson in it, Woody Harrelson and Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine in and it. Rebel Alley, <laughs> and uh, uh, is Isla Fisher, Fisher right? Like, um, yes. yeah. Uh, which I actually went to see because I like heist movies. I like movies with twists and turns, and and I'm I'm disappointed a little bit that we're not going to have an opportunity to talk about it. Um, on this podcast, because I think there were some very good things about it and some some very problematic things about it, but but never mind. And you know, after after Earth is a you know came in came in as third, right? And like and the all whereas all the predictions yeah. had been Let's like put it this way, 
John Carter made more than After Earth in its opening weekend. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> of course, John Carter probably cost like twice as much, but still, that stinks. Yeah, um, After Earth budget was uh, 130 million. Yeah, geez. Not, yeah. So yeah, wow. That's that's kind of profound. Well, so hold, I, on, I, hold on, hold on, hold on. I mean, I I don't want to I don't want to blinky this podcast, right? Where we like <laughs> where we compare a movie's you know stated number, stated budget, right? Production budget with its stated domestic box office gross, because like a. Um, the real numbers are are nothing like you know are nothing like what gets stated and like by the way like after Earth or you know a lot of a lot of these movies are just heavily um, heavily insured by selling off the foreign rights you know before frame one is shot of the movie you know so you only mm-hmm. have to make twenty million dollars to to uh, break even you know to break even on your movie and you're you're bound to do that so like it's you know the the movie i think this numbers game this horse race numbers game that we've gotten into is a uh uh i don't know i think it's a it's a red herring a lot of the time when we talk about it but but like uh you know it it happened this uh, my my point was this sort of thing happened this very weekend where all the metrics the tracking the 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 knowledge of the movie the uh, the kind of intent to purchase metrics right like w- we're looking good for after earth and then it it came in after this sort of uh much less you know i don't know much less flashy movie that had you know a bunch of septuagenarians in it right 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 i mean what i would what i would say to sort of to sort of uh tie the knot on that is you know netflix when it made house of cards and when it made arrested development it had access to a bunch of data that it already had that told them that the people who already bought their service uh like this sort of product and they used that to make the call to make the make the stuff right and like and and what we've seen is that you know it, it is reasonable it seems to be reasonably good at giving us a sense of whether people are going to watch it but it's not perfect in terms of determining what's going to be a huge hit or not um and, and the question isn't, and like the, the, the thing, the one point is their their data is not as big as people think it is. Like this is not really big data. This is just what their customers are buying from them, right? Like, um, so so the point is, how much would they be willing to additionally invest? How much would it be smart? Not how much were they willing to? Because I'm sure some people would will love to just throw money down the toilet. You know, you know, who cares about the shareholders? But it's like. Um, how much would would it be smart to invest to try to figure out you know what the next big hit is going to be via market research versus like how much is it smart to like take risks and just try to do do a bunch of really good things right like uh, and I think the answer is like there is an answer for each company where it's like okay this is the smart amount of money to invest in market research I, mean, I think in video games you've seen the sort of dopamine management more that we were talking about than you see in movies uh, or they're in TV shows because I think the investment levels are different but um, and just the experience that you go through with it is different but even then, uh, I do take a certain amount of comfort in uh, in in, in uh, the inability of of people to predict the future uh, in terms of our ability to maintain some sense of agency over our lives, <laughs> which is ironic because it's like because things are unpredictable and no one has any control of them, we can pretend we have control of them. Uh, Fast, and Furious, <laughs> Fast and Furious 6, in addition to its $170 million domestic gross, uh, has grossed $310 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide gross of almost half a billion dollars. I mean, wow. you wow. know, four, $480 million. American Muscle. What can you say? And that's for that's for a six. That's for like a sixth movie in a franchise. <laughs> <laughs> for which the second one is 
basically a cable television episode. <laughs> but, but anyway, what about Arrested Development? <laughs> what about Tobias? Did anyone think anything about Tobias in this show? Just, just briefly, like, for me, um, I've only seen, what did I say, the, the first six episodes of that. Um, mm-hmm. And Tobias has always been my favorite character in Arrested Development. Like, one through four, is like, okay, this is good, but not great. This isn't, hasn't quite reached that level of sublimity that I'm familiar with. And then the Tobias episode drop, number five. Um, as I was just beside myself with joy in that episode. Do, um, well, I mean, like it was it was like an it was like a it was like a new start, you know. <laughs> it's exactly like a new start because that was the title of the episode. Um, I mean, like part of this is just like from it, it, it's really simple to say, but like there's a lot of humanity to be derived from the the closeted homosexuality of Tobias, right? Uh, and and they have just found a way to. <laughs> To mind that well of jokes um, continuously, just like kind of just drilling deeper into that hole, drilling deeper into that hole. <laughs> you, you really need to record yourself and listen to what the, what you're saying. <laughs> drill, baby, drill. Yeah, but I like my favorite thing about the Tobias arc was actually Maria Bamford, right? Like because her character. I don't know. There's there's a kind of like heroin addict, the drug addict. Yeah, Yeah. there's a kind of like impenetrability field that all the family members, all the Bluths, and even Bluths by marriage have. You know um, that they can't really fall that far, no matter what happens to them. But like Maria Bamford coming in and introducing this this extraordinarily uh, abject level of human suffering, you know, sort of in the, you know, in the, in, and like the number of times she said, no, don't do that. Why would you do that? That's, oh God, no, you know, like, and, and played it, played it really, really straight. I, I don't know. I liked her stand up before this, but I really admire her a lot after watching this as a, you know, as an actor. Um, yeah, I found her arc hard to watch, but in a very good way. Yeah, like, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was often difficult to just like bear it and see, you know, see a kind of really realistic portrayal to the extent that anything in the series is realistic of of what would happen if Tobias actually entered your life. <laughs> I felt really right, and I felt really bad when Lucille started bad mouthing her dancing in the musical rehearsal and yep. like you know like. She was trying really hard, guys, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone doubts her effort. I think that's a consensus opinion, Matt. <laughs> Straight down the middle. I'm just being a jerk. I'm being such a jerk. Oh, and yeah, what about the Fantastic Four musical? Were you guys, would you guys watch that? I think oh, yeah. it was better or worse than Turn Off the Dark. <laughs> so, right, yeah, I mean, is that what was going on with that? Like, I was a little curious. I was a little curious as to, like, what the Fantastic Four uh, were doing in season four. Um, maybe it was a Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark joke. And then the other thing is, like, what was up with all the ostriches? Yeah. That's something like it was a recurring theme. There were lots of hidden ostriches throughout, but that, like, uh, like the Tony Wonder tea, like the um, the the cross, it never really paid off. We never got to see what was behind that. Well, right, Wait, yeah. was that it an just... actual? I thought there were just a bunch of D. Reynolds cameos <laughs> <laughs> from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There was an actual ostrich in the in the show. Yeah. All right. That's it. Never mind. No one cares. No, no. I got it. It was <laughs> right, the right. Rashomon episode of uh, Always Sunny. 
Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Which I guess is sort of also in turn very similar to what we're watching here in certain ways. Um, but I thought, it, I mean, I thought it was interesting. Like, what is the underlying? What is the underlying thing? I don't know. I've recently, I I know that we have a lot of like, you know, super professional improvisers in the overthinking and crew and on on the podcast here with me now. But I only recently got into it, and I happened to get into it through UCBLA and their concept of like the game, which is like a pattern that you right. repeat mm-hmm. um, that that comes up, and you know, can be set against other other schools of improvisational comedy that are focused more on character or relationship or emotion or, you know, um, things that are, things that are a little more humane, this, uh, this kind of abstract idea of pattern and kind of repeating pattern and kind of the recognition of pattern repetition being, being something that is satisfying to people. Um, it's a little abstract, isn't it? And like, I felt that way about some of the jokes in this fourth season. And that's, that's by and I mentioned this all by way of the ostrich joke that it was sort of, it was game without, Without a ton no, of underlying you're, you're meaning. Following the, you're following the detail there, Matt. You're not following the game. Uh, sorry, I'm talking <laughs> to myself because that's a note of, that we get many, 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 many times. <laughs> that yeah. there is an ostrich is not game. Well, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, no, no, fair it, enough. It could be as simple that the ostrich was just meant to, you know, be the obvious metaphor of the blues having their head in the sand, and the, all of them encountering that was was to remind us of how oblivious these people are. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was also useful that you had certain like tableau images uh, of like very sort of very extraordinary visual images uh, so that you knew where in the story you were at any given time. Like the bunch of people trashing Cinco de Cuatro and like the ostrich running around in the crazy apartment. Right. Mm-hmm. Like these were things that helped you ground where you were in the in the thing. Yeah. Um, but the ostrich prophet, in addition to like the actual ostrich, was an interesting, uh, an interesting bookend to that. Yeah, and I feel like there's a stuffed ostrich somewhere too. That may have been in Cinco de Cuatro, Cuatro, or it may have been somewhere else. Right, 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 right. And so it, sim- it symbolizes willful ignorance of your situation. Yes. And so a ostrich prophet is kind of, is ironic because it's one that lets you know about how much you are going to pay attention to what's going to happen. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. So yeah, there's a lot to do. There's a lot to unwind and unravel. But I mean, if you want to talk about it in terms of game, um, I guess well, what you, you were really talking about it more in terms of like there are mechanisms for achieving humor functionally that are being used in a somewhat abstract sense uh, throughout the, throughout Arrested Development. There's like repetitions and there's patterns. Uh, well, and that's right, like I'm, I'm talking about like two two axes that are that are orthogonal to each other. Like one is pattern, and another is sort of relationship, right? And like you can, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. You can have a uh, you can have a joke that is high on the relationship scale and low on the kind of abstract pattern scale, and hence you have everything loves Raymond, right? Or everybody loves or everything. Every, <laughs> sorry, I love to watch a show. I love to watch. It. That's the next generation of everybody loves Raymond. Is just a show. Four inanimate objects. It's just like your toaster wants to watch this show. Wow, it's been a lot of the Chateau Neuf de Pop Pop. I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm slurring my speech. And then you have a sh- then you have jokes that are high on the the pattern abstraction scale and low on the relationship scale, and and hence you have. I actually don't know what the the. Um, 
I don't know what the the uh, the example of that would be, but but I the, yeah, you're probably right. Pete calling me out that that's like detail. It's more a motif than it is yeah. a game. In the, I mean, we we you know. we could really Ben and I could really get into the weeds on that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I feel I, like we're gonna re- we're resisting right now. <laughs> like we're yeah. in a whole because we don't we're not prepared to really <laughs> dig into this very. I I feel like less safe talking about really intense improv theory than making like definitive predictions about the stock market. <laughs> Right. I think the the short answer to what you were saying, Matt, was that uh, good games, good patterns should be rooted in the relationship. Uh, Meanwhile, um, uh, callbacks can be a callback to anything. You can have a a Alstrid show up in one scene and make a callback to that in a later scene. But if you're doing, if if it's a game, it really should be rooted in the relationship. Or we yeah. can stop talking this, about improv. This, this, this is the section where, like, we can come back to this later because we are a running out of time and uh, b opening up a, a can of worms uh, that uh, I'd love to I'd love to dig into at some point because um, they're delicious. But uh, <laughs> we have better food available to us at the present moment. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's go eat that and leave the worms to the commenters. Uh, could you so- delicious cor- go for a delicious cornball right now? <laughs> Mm. Um, so, uh, would you like to uh, would you like to jump on the uh, the conversation bandwagon that is the overthinking and podcast? You can email podcastoverthinking.com You can call two zero three two eight five six four zero one two. No hop ons though. No hop ons to the bandwagon. <laughs> Let's just try to jam as many Arrested Development running jokes That's into the idea. Yes. Into this. I just I just performed oral sex on myself. <laughs> Wait, is that not one? Nope. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> uh, or uh, leave a comment in the show notes on this episode. We will be back next week with another Overthinking It podcast. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> hey guys, you know what's really good? The Chateau Neuf de Pop Pop. The mere fact that you call it that tells me you're not ready to drink it.